0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Buddhist Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Sensore Maiji, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Jeffrey Barstow about his new book titled The Food of Sinful Demons Meat, Vegetarianism, and the Limits of Buddhism in Tibet, published by the Columbia University Press. Um, Jeffrey Barstow is an assistant professor at the School of of History, Philosophy, and Religion at Oregon State University. So, welcome, Jeff. Thank you. Great. So, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, I've really enjoyed reading your book. It's extremely interesting because, you know, when you think of Tibet, you think of people eating meat. Um, Yes, so it's really great to have you on the show today to talk about your book. So, could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah. um, So, I guess... I feel like the the relevant parts of the of my life really start in college where I was fortunate enough to be able to take some really interesting courses on Buddhism and at the time I was you know just sort of really interested both personally and academically in um, in in sort of world religions and um and experimenting with these things and so I had some very cool teachers there who really um prompted me to to sort of think about things in new and and critical ways. Um, and then I also had the opportunity to do a study abroad program. Uh that got me to India. I did the Antioch program in India. And um that introduced me to Chocanimian Bashe and uh the Sheshedra in Nepal. And so that you know, really, as soon as I heard about that, I decided that was where I wanted to be. And so, as soon as I uh, graduated, um, you know, I worked for seven months to save some money, and then uh, moved out to Nepal and enrolled in the program there. And that's really, that's really sort of where my interest in Buddhism comes from. Um, you know, so how I'm, long
0: were you in Nepal,
1: Nishi? I was there for four years. So I was there from 2002 to 2006. Um, and it was just as they were getting started with uh, offering the the actual bachelor's degree um, so it was a really it was a very fun time to be around you know lots of new things were happening um, you know i had the opportunity to meet all kinds of amazing llamas and teachers um, you know in addition to the llamas we had um, some really amazing um, academics coming through and talking and speaking with us and really Getting a sense of um, you know what what goes into that and, and where Buddhist studies is from a whole bunch of perspectives um, and yeah so at the end of that I um, you know was sort of sitting here like okay I've, I finished this bachelor's degree I've now got a second bachelor's in Buddhist studies from Ranganesha. Um sort of what do I what do I do and the pretty clear answer was that I wanted to keep studying and so that meant uh, at the time, they didn't have a master's program there. I probably would have stayed. Um stayed, but that meant coming back to the U.S. and um, getting on the the academic track, first at the Harvard Divinity School and then uh, at the University of Virginia for my Ph.D.
0: Wonderful. All right. And that gets you here to the book. Um, yeah, so there we go. The research for the book, I believe, if I'm correct, um, kind of happened during your PhD
1: program. Is that yeah, correct? definitely. This was uh, this was my dissertation.
0: Oh, wonderful. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about how the project came about?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to do that. It was. Um, I mean, it was an, it, in some ways. I, I think there's actually some interesting backstory here because I initially we love <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> um, when I when I started at Virginia I actually had an entirely different um uh dissertation in mind. I uh, was interested in the Manicabam and notions of uh kingship and Pama mythology and these kinds of things in um in that text and in some of the early materials. And I actually I spent about a year and a half um sort of half-heartedly I would say working on that because um, it wasn't really something that really excited me I guess is the truth um, and you know it was a project because I felt like I needed to, you know I needed to have a project I was you know a PhD student but it wasn't really um, it wasn't really exciting me and yeah so one day I was late in my in my second year I um, I was reading the, uh, Patrul Rinpoche's, uh, Kunzala the words, of my perfect teacher, really just for myself. Um, and I can't even remember why I was reading it. And I came across one of the passages in there where he's critical of me. And, uh, I'd been a vegetarian myself for many years at that point. Um, and so I just sort of, yeah, you just had this thought of sort of, okay, well, this is interesting. I wonder if there's anything else out there. Um, Like this, because, like you said, when you when you think of Tibetans, you think of, you know, dried hunks of sheep under the tent, right? You know, and you know, raw off the bone meat and momos and everything is all the food you think of is this really fatty, meaty stuff. And so, I just sort of started wondering, and I poked around a little bit, got a couple of other um, sources that were like, okay, you know, you know, here's something saying something about it. Um and that was really at that point it, it it was just very clear in my mind that this is what I should be looking at uh rather than the Mani Kabum. Um and I remember going in and having a meeting with my advisor where I was extremely nervous. Um this was with Curtis Schaefer and I was quite nervous because uh I was gonna ask him to change my topic. Um and i felt like you know i I assumed he was going to say something along the lines of um oh you've already put a year and a half into this other one why don't you stick with that keep you know vegetarianism as a second project or something like that um you know but i explained what i was interested in what i'd found and uh his response was very simple he said yeah good do that and that was it and so i was like okay (laughs) good um you know, there was he was totally on board from the from the beginning. Uh, David Germano, uh was also extremely supportive, and um, yeah, and so that was the that was the beginning of the project. Um,
0: yeah, nice. Yeah. And um, then where did it go from there? Because I remember you mentioned um, you utilized over one hundred and ten yeah. textual sources
1: for the project and that's huge (laughs) so where i mean so the next step of course you know is finding source material and i mean we've all we all struggle with this right the 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 tibetan literary world is just like crazy huge um and you know hundreds of thousands of volumes maybe millions of different titles i don't know but you know more than anybody can actually process um uh TBRC, uh, now BDRC, was just sort of really becoming a thing when I was doing this. And so, you know, it, it started out by searching in titles. Um, but what I pretty quickly found out was that um, there wasn't a lot. There were not a lot of texts that where you could find by title that this text says something about meat. Um, you know, there's seven or eight probably that, you know, really... You can find like that where it's we'll say something like or the faults of meat in the title but most of the sources that i ended up using were parts of larger texts and so really the hardest part about this entire project was just finding those dumb things you know finding the passage where it's one page out of a hundred where the author says hey you know when you're on the road and you're traveling don't eat a lot of meat or that's it and that's the only reference or you'll be reading like or there'll be like a 400 page biography and it'll say literally i, I can think of a couple of texts like this it'll literally say on one line on his 22nd birthday he took monastic ordination and uh renounced meat and alcohol wow and that's so it So
0: that you have to sit um just scroll through.
1: No, because I can't. Okay. So, the, <laughs> they, like, my, um, you know, I'm totally incapable of that. And so, really, what I turned to was um, asking everybody uh, I knew and everybody I met if they'd ever seen anything like this. And this really became my research methodology, um, you know, including grad student colleagues, uh, professors. Um, you know, everybody. I, you know, I'd meet people and be like, "Hey, here's my topic. If you ever hear anything in any text you come across this, just shoot me a shoot me an email. Let me know, right? I would really appreciate it." Um, and people were actually amazingly supportive, like that. Um, I've gotten dozens of emails from people where they're just like, "Hey, look, I found a, I found a reference to vegetarianism in this text that I'm working on. Thought thought I'd let you know." Um, when I uh did my field work in Tibet. a lot of what I would do would be to just travel around from monastery to monastery and go to the lamas, go to kempos, you know go to the librarians, and sit down and say, Hey, I'm interested in this um Have you ever seen this in any texts and you know three quarters of the time they'd say no, and I could think of several occasions where I'd travel for you know two or three days to get to some monastery and basically, you know, have a fun trip, but not come back with anything uh, consequential. But sometimes they'd say yes, or they'd say things like, oh, have you seen this text? And I'd be like, nope, no, I haven't. And then, you know, out comes the camera and you start photographing stuff. Or they'll be like, oh, yes, well, this person in our lineage, um, you know, was a vegetarian 100 years ago. We don't, he doesn't have a Namtar uh, biography, but let me tell you about it, right? Or, you know, in some cases, it became, yeah, my teacher was a vegetarian in the '40s, right? Or even sometimes, my teacher was a vegetarian in the '40s, and he maintained the diet straight through the Maoist years, right? And so you got to, I got to have some really amazing interviews with really amazing people, um, just by showing up and asking really this like super simple question of like, do you know anybody who is vegetarian or any texts that talk about vegetarianism? And sometimes they just would, that would be the beginning of a really long conversation and sometimes really lasting friendships. Um, so it, it was a really, it was in some ways a really simple process, but also just a really wonderful one. It also I'm just going to say, it also has left me in a lot of people's debt. And so I try to be, I try to maintain, you know, an awareness of that and help out wherever I can, uh, in turn, because it seems like that's a—it's a good way to do scholarship, right?
0: Definitely, and I think having this book out is a big deal for, especially this topic as well, because it is controversial. Um, yeah, so the book. Um, so I think this might be a little bit selfish, but I know a lot of our listeners out there are also kind of early stage scholars and. What was the process of turning the thesis into a book like? Was it, you know, what are the challenges there?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, I rewrote from page one. So there is not any, there is not a single word from the actual dissertation that made it into the book. Um, The basic reason for that is as I was writing the dissertation, um, I realized sort of, halfway in that the structure that i was using was didn't really make a lot of sense that i was writing a dissertation that was a a series of thematically connected chapters but that didn't have a arc across the whole book or across the whole dissertation at the time um but for various reasons um primarily honestly financial ones um You know, I was not in a financial position to take an extra year to rewrite the dissertation. Um, I can, you know, had to continue doing the dissertation, even though, uh, as it was, even though I knew that I was going to change it around a lot when I um, started writing the book. And um, so that sort of having that realization also allowed me to have a lot of really important conversations with my advisors, um, with my whole committee recently really, and um, and now it was those conversations that helped me figure out how to, or what a more, what I think ended up being a more profitable structure for the book was. And so it was, in, in a lot of ways, the dissertation was just sort of a rough draft, right? It was me putting all these sources that I'd found on paper. Writing things out and in the process of writing it, figuring out what worked and didn't work in terms of my arguments and so then, having gone through that process, I was in a much better place to actually start writing the book again and so when I did do the when I restarted the book, at that point it actually the writing went fairly smoothly um, and did not take uh, did not take too long so
0: Yeah, I particularly liked your um, comment on the structure because Mm -hmm. I think you mentioned in the book that you structured it according to the way that these authors themselves structure their arguments about meat. Yeah. Could you say something about that? Yeah,
1: definitely. The the overall structure of the book is basically it's got two halves where the first half is um, sort of presenting the arguments as I've been able to suss them out from all of these different texts. and the second half is more a, a a critical look at the place of meat in Tibetan culture, and particularly asking the question of why wasn't vegetarianism more common? Because one of the really striking things is that all of these, so many of these religious texts that I'm reading all say that meat is bad and it's good to be vegetarian, so then the next question is, okay, well, well, why weren't they? Right? Why wasn't it more common? But the first half... Um, what I ended up doing is I structured it along the lines of the three vows, the Domsum in Tibetan, where um, the idea is that um, sort of most practitioners end up taking three different sets of vows, and those are the monastic vows, the Bodhisattva vow, and then the tantric samayas. And I ended up deciding that that was a good way to structure the first half of the book, um, in part because it allowed me to really get into a lot of the issues that were coming up because one of the one of the things is that there's a real tension between these different perspectives on meat and they actually each of these perspectives says something really different about whether or not people should eat meat and if they do how and why and when and stuff like that um, but I also really liked the fact that this then mirrored a lot of the text that I was reading because a lot of the text that I read would also structured their discussion along the lines of the three vows. And so you'll have someone who'll say, well, according to the Hinayana perspective, um, it's okay to eat meat as long as it has threefold purity. But according to the Bodhisattva perspective, it's not okay to eat any meat. And then in the tantric perspective, you have to eat the five meats in the ritual, but that's it. And so they, this is how the sort of my primary sources themselves were, were often structuring it. Um, and so i was it was happy I was happy to be able to sort of to to mirror that um that structure in the first half of the book, yeah,
0: that worked very well definitely yeah, thank you um yes, yeah, so also something you mentioned which I found really interesting and so I hope they listened will too is you mentioned that from the thirteenth to fifteenth century, there was more texts that were mm-hmm. written about vegetarianism, and then there's a decline yeah. from the sixteenth to eighteenth yeah so wh- why do you think this was?
1: <laughs> <laughs> um yeah this is a this is an interesting one and it's um <sighs> yeah it it's it's a thing that in some ways my views have actually evolved on this since I wrote the book and I would probably um say things phrase things slightly differently at this point the the key shift that I would um that I would make would be in my reading of J. And his works, I think, as I wrote the book, I was reading Kedrip J largely through the lens of some later vegetarians who cite him and was seeing him as more pro-vegetarian than he actually was. And I think um, uh, particularly through the process of working with Anna Johnson on her translation of J, uh for uh, actually the next book that's coming out uh, in October, which is a collection of translations. Um, Realize that actually Kedrup J is pretty pro meat as far as um, Tibetans go, and so I have a suspicion, and I, I I'll just leave this as a suspicion, um, but that part of what happened in the from the 15th century on is that uh, is the rise of the Geluk and um, the rise of uh, the sort of the the power and status of the Geluk tradition, which under Kedrup Jay's uh, Influence um, really did not promote vegetarianism in the ways that uh, the Kagyu and Sakya and Mingma um, had been in the centuries prior, and so that—that that I'd say is a suspicion, uh, an educated guess. But I would not also be surprised if somebody comes along and says, "Oh no, no, it's not that way at all. Let me show you why." Um, so that's my—that's my suspicion on that. I do want to say though it's not like vegetarianism ever actually goes away right there's it's sort of it it waxes and wanes in popularity, and I think that the the two real periods where I see it emerging as a major thing are the thirteenth to fifteenth centuries um and there are places and I, I think in particular like more monastery where it's quite possible that actually like vegetarianism was the norm, like everybody may have been for. A fairly long period of time, um, and then again in the nineteenth and early twentieth centuries in calm. And one of the things that's interesting there is that the the references in bio, the biographical references to vegetarianism become shorter as we get towards the end of that period. Like it's pretty normal in a biography for whoever's writing the biography to you know, oh my master is so amazing, he's this wonderful person he didn't even eat meat, right? And it's sort of held up as this thing, right? It's like, wow, can you believe how great this guy is? But by, you know, early 20th century, com, it kind of becomes not a thing, right? Like, um, I'm thinking of uh, Sarah Khandro's Namtar, where it mentions in two different places that she doesn't eat meat normally. Um, but they're not, they're not held up as like evidence of unusual sanctity. It's just kind of a thing, and I suspect that part of that is that actually it was pretty common, and so it wasn't unusually, it wasn't unusual to be vegetarian at the time. And I've had the um, the good fortune to have interviewed now um, four or five quite elderly lamas who were alive in Calm in the forties. Um, in the thirties and who remember that time and have asked them, right? You know, was vegetarianism common? And the answer I get from just about, I got from all of them was, yeah, it, it was, it was common. There were lots of vegetarians. Some people were, some people weren't. You didn't have to be one way or the other. Um, but it was clear that from these responses that it, at least by, you know, early 20th century and come, it was not a wholly unusual thing to be a vegetarian.
0: Yeah. So going back a little bit um before we jump into some of the other later chapters so you defined what vegetarianism means in the Tibetan context and that was a really interesting discussion um I wonder if you can just sum up some of those
1: points. Yeah, I mean I think the the key thing is that the the terminology like you know we have this word in English vegetarian and there's not really an obvious equivalent in Tibetan in contemporary um Tibetan, of course, uh, there's karse, uh, right, or karsepa. Um, but in a lot of the older literature, you don't see that uh, the this um, question of dokar uh, as a term for people who um, who don't who are vegetarian. Um, but even there, it's restricted to like I don't see it in a lot of contexts, right? It's in a few particular lineages, but not necessarily a broadly used term. Um, and instead, what I tend to see when, a, when a biography says, Oh, this person, um, becomes vegetarian. They don't put it in that, they don't phrase it in that kind of a positive way where the person is adopting a specific diet, a vegetarianism. Instead, they tend to say, you know, Oh, on his 20th birthday, he gave up meat. Right. And so it's actually phrased, the phrasing is negative as something that's renounced rather than something that's adopted. And so to my mind, that's actually a much more flexible phrasing. And so it allows for a definition of vegetarianism that is less sort of less strict and less really defined than what we're used to in English, right? And so under that sort of more flexible definition, we can include things like partial vegetarianism, people who are saying like you know i um don't eat meat you know i didn't eat meat for a year right or i took a vow to not eat meat for a year right or i don't eat meat uh in the evening right or um you know i uh don't eat meat while i'm on retreat Right? these are all examples of um real examples that i've that i came across um it also allows for people to, like what we in English might call reducetarians, right? Someone who says, I'm, I can't really give it up, but I'm trying to eat less, right? And these are also sort of variations on, um, on vegetarianism, on the practice of vegetarianism that are fairly common, and there's a whole variety of these. Um, and so one of the things that I think is actually really interesting about vegetarianism, and one of the one of the hopes for this book really also is um, to introduce some discussions of vegetarianism from the Tibetan Buddhist context into the contemporary Western philosophical and ethical discussions of meat-eating. And so one of the ways actually where I think that uh, the Tibetan example actually has some real uh, things to contribute is in this sense of the flexibility of vegetarianism itself. and Sort of shifting focus from adherence to a particular to the sort of the strictures of a particular diet to a focus on sort of reasonable attempts to reduce animal suffering, right? Um, And so I think that there is something valuable in the Tibetan tradition to contribute to um, contemporary discussions, and I hope that this um, book can serve as something of a like a conduit to Make that discussion start happening with people.
0: Definitely, yeah. So going to that point of compassion. So compassion is a big theme throughout what the entire book, but especially I guess the second, third, and fourth chapter on the different types of vows. And can you say something more about um, the different types of vows and you know compassion, vegetarianism in these contexts and how they all kind of tie together? Because like you mentioned already, some of these ideals are drastically different
1: in the context of meat. Yeah. I mean, I think the, I mean, compassion is the driving motivator for vegetarianism in Tibet, uh, across the board. Um, you know, in the contemporary context, we see people becoming vegetarian for all kinds of reasons. And I have interviewed contemporary Tibetans who are becoming vegetarian because of health or environment or, um, other reasons. But at least in the, um, sort of the pre 1950 literature, it's all compassion. Right. This is really the crux of the of the issue, um, and it, that's I mean, that's the thing that people are looking at, and the the basic conundrum that I think a lot of people found themselves in is that they they're looking around them and they see animals being killed, and they see that that is a painful thing, and then they're like, we sit here and we say that we're supposed to be Compassionate for all sentient beings, and yet here I am eating this and participating in this process. And in, on my reading, that's really been that was the thing—the sort of the the inflection point for um, a lot of these discussions. Um, the the question of the vows themselves is a really interesting one because while the bodhisattva vows really emphasize compassion and it's a mahayana tradition right everybody's on board with that if you go to the actual vows that monks take they are explicitly allowed to eat meat as long as the meat has threefold purity which means that they have not seen heard or suspected that the animal was killed specifically for them right and so the question then becomes what does it mean when to say that the animal is killed specifically for you Because for a lot of Tibetans, and we can uh, point to Kedrup Jay on this, um, if you bought meat from a butcher, that meat was not killed specifically for you, right? It was killed for sale, but not for you as an individual. And so therefore you could buy that meat and that meat had threefold purity. Ergo, it was just fine to eat that if you were a monk, right? That didn't go against your vows. For other Tibetans, Right. Other uh, Tibetans who were motivated, I think, whose motivation primarily came from their reading of um, Bodhisattva, Bodhisattva Yana uh, texts, that seems like um, kind of a dodge, right? They're like, no, look, you know, you, you participate in this economy of meat, right? The butchers are setting up shop outside the monastery because... They can sell you meat. If you don't buy it, they won't sell it, and they won't kill the animals, right? So there's a, there are some real sort of active debates over what exactly does this rule of threefold purity mean, right? Um, and in a lot of ways, actually, I think that's sort of the central thing, the central question, um, because I think pretty much all Tibetans, uh or all religiously inclined tibetans are going to agree that um or would have agreed that actually killing the animal the act of slaughter is not a good thing right that's a sinful act that will accrue bad karma right um so the question then becomes how far from that do you have to be in order to eat eat the meat
0: and i guess that's not something that's so easily answered
1: it's not really um you know it's there's a variety of sort of st- levels or degrees of distance from the actual act of slaughter and one of the things that you do see quite clearly in the literature is the the further you get from that like for instance um roadkill uh pretty much everybody agrees that animals that have died naturally or in an accident um through no fault of your own um that that is Acceptable, right? There's no moral fault to eating that. Um, Gorampa makes an interesting exception um, because he actually, he'll come out and say, no, don't even eat that stuff because if you eat that, then you will regain your taste for meat and you will want it more. And then it'll be harder to say no than this time when the meat is not acceptable. Um, but other, than, other than, than him, pretty much everyone agrees that, you know, if it's legitimately legitimately died in an accident was uncaused then that's okay right and they also tend to agree that sort of the longer time has gone by the further you are from the act of killing buying fresh meat is worse than buying dried meat right and these kinds of things and really it's i think it's this sort of um this sort of Questioning of how much responsibility does someone bear for the actual death through the purchase, and how do they weigh the various factors involved in that?
0: Yes, and also, I guess, the threefold purity context, which comes from India, um, yeah. where the Vinaya was kind of first came to be, and then the Tibetan context, when we're talking, you know, at least five, six hundred years later.
1: It, it, Shankar makes a really good point, I think, to my mind, about 3-4 purity, and he says that, look, in India, right, monks, according to classic Vinaya and in, in Shankar's mind, monks went out and begged every day for their food. And then they would go from house to house, and they would show up at houses, and the householder would not know that the monk was coming. It wasn't a set route, right, it wasn't like, in at least this is in his understanding, the monk shows up, and the householder just gives the monk a little bit of whatever food the householder happens to be eating. And in that kind of a context, Shavkar says, yeah, you know what? That meat does have threefold purity, because the householder did not kill it, right? Did not kill the animal with any sense of, I will give it to the monk. And so the monk legitimately can feel like he has he's not responsible for the death of the animal. And then Shavkar turns around and says, look, in Tibet... We don't do this anymore, right? The cultural context of our food is different. Instead of going from door to door, what we do is we go out to the market and we buy the stuff, or people bring it and they give it to us in the monasteries. And if we say we don't want meat, people won't give us meat. And so he's really pointing to this idea that threefold purity should be understood in the context in which the monks and the nuns actually acquire their food. it's, a, it's To my mind, actually, it's a really interesting uh, argument that Shabkar makes, and I think we can even take it a step further and say that it says some really interesting things about how uh, we might interpret the Vinaya uh, more broadly, um, beyond just questions of meat. But that's also beyond my research and I'll leave that there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Shavka, um, he's an interesting figure, isn't he?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think Matthew Ricard calls him something like, uh, you know, the most adamant uh, vegetarian that you'll ever find in, uh, in Tibetan literature. And uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh, Matthew's right. And um, there's a, a wonderful text uh, that um, Rachel Pong uh, translated for the upcoming volume Uh, She did a a few texts by Shabkar, Um, but one of them, uh, he's really he's sending a letter to the Dalai Lama and uh, upbraiding uh, him for and asking him, please, please, you know, stop eating meat. And it's this, it's a really remarkable uh, thing. Um, Shabkar, he had opinions and did not mind telling people what they were.
0: So, in the second half of the book, you really talk about this at length about the people in favor of eating meat and the positive effects and so forth. Before we get to that, I just want to ask one question about um the tantric vows. Uh, the chapter about tantric vows. I think um you can probably talk more about this. The five meats, um one of which is an elephant. So how available would some of this have been in Tibet, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, obviously almost unavailable, right? I mean, again you know the five meats came from a context in which um you know these things at least existed um i people have come up with a lot of workarounds for the five meats uh for listeners who might not know um the five meats are uh human horse cow uh dog and elephant i think is that the right list okay the the list varies somewhat in different texts but the thing that really makes these meats powerful is that they are not things that people normally consume right nobody walks around and eats human and in india you also didn't walk around and eat beef and so these are taboo meats and so within certain tantric rituals however the idea is uh at least according to the tibetans that i'm reading um the idea is that By consuming these otherwise taboo meats, you can uh, help sort of cut through um, your own, um, what do we say, like your own preconceptions or your own sense of uh, what's right and wrong and discover the sort of the primordial emptiness of everything, right, by realizing that taboo substances like human flesh are not actually all that different than sheep or yak, you can have this sort of powerful transformative experience. Um, the thing that all of the texts that I have read um, want to focus on, though, is that this is done within a particular ritual context, right? This is not license to go out and eat meat every day in the marketplace. Especially human. It's something that you, especially human. Yeah, really don't do that. Um, It's something that you you do within this particular ritual. And then outside of that context, you don't do it. Patrol has a really, um, this is Patrol Rinpoche in the words, my perfect teacher has a really um, interesting line where he says, if you go out and you eat the five meats in the marketplace, because you're attached to the flavor, that's actually violating your samaya, And so, if you eat like if you eat meat in the name of tantra according to patrul but actually you're only doing it because you like it then you're actually breaking your vows instead of upholding them um and this was a pretty common refrain that i came across in a bunch of different texts this concern that people that practitioners might say oh i'm a tantric practitioner so i can do all this stuff when actually they are not there yet, right? Um, you know, uh, I, I think it's, I forget who it was, Madhya Jigme Lingpa says something like, um, oh, you know, yeah, if you can revive the animal and bring it back to life, then sure, then you can go eat the meat. But I can't do that, and I don't think you can either, or some variant on that, right? Like there, there's a sense of practitioners needs to make a real uh, appraisal of their own tantric um, capabilities. And generally speaking, limit their consumption of the five meats to within this particular ritual. The thing that you mentioned, though, I mean, even within the ritual, where the heck do you get elephant, right? Like, how do you get this stuff in Tibet? And the truth is, I don't think anybody did.
0: No, so I was going to say, like, you because know, some people have argued there might be a visualization aspect to it. Well, I mean, you didn't even eat. Because I think you mentioned this in the book.
1: The um, there's a couple of strategies. I mean, the one thing to to start with is that most of the time, the five when the five meats are consumed, they're in pill form. So you're not getting like a flank steak of elephant, right? You're you're getting these little tiny pills, and theoretically within them, right, there's little tiny bits of the five meats. But when they actually make the pills, if you look at the rituals. To produce more pills, they tend to there. Are lots of herbs will go in, and then they also will use some of the previous batch of pills as a starter. And so it's like the the brewer's yeast, right? And that those pills also theoretically have the five meats in them. But that batch of pills, you know, had the five meats from the previous batch of pills, and the previous batch of pills. So like on a molecular level, I don't know how many molecules of the five meats actually exist in most of these pills. Because most people, like when they do the ritual, they're not adding new quantities of the five meats most of the time. Um, the other ritual that uh, I came across, which I thought was really fascinating, uh, is from the Dujim, uh lineage. where what you do when you make these pills is instead of actually using the five meats you get a piece of wood and you carve out the shapes of the five animals that the meat comes from in the wood then you take sampa, and zampa, uh for those who don't know is like uh it's roasted barley flour and it's mixed with water in this case and you get kind of like a, a dough a pasty dough and so you push this into the holes then you take it out and you have like Tzampa representations of the five animals. But you, you don't even actually mix those in with the pills. Instead, you take them and you soak them overnight in water. And the animal essence of that's now in these uh, Tzampa cakes comes and permeates the water, and you use the water to make your pills. And so there's no actual meat in sight, in, at least in that particular uh variant on the ritual and i don't want to put it past um the possibility that there is actual that people did do this i mean there was trade with india maybe people could get elephant if they wanted for a ritual um but uh, but my my strong sense is that these are the important thing is that people understand that what's in the pills and that that's this is the thing that can provoke this mental transformation. Um, but that the actual quantities of the five meats in the pills is probably pretty low.
0: So then to the kind of positive or neutral aspects of meat, I guess now kind of getting to the slightly more social context of the whole problem. Um, yeah, I'm just going to let you
1: go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, I, again, I'll say like the – the second half of the book really comes about as a um a response to this question. Question being like, okay, I've just gone through in like a hundred plus pages and talked about all the reasons that Tibetans gave why you shouldn't eat meat, right? And there are you know the three each of the three vows, whatever people are coming from all over the place. There's this you know fairly broad consensus that on strictly Religious grounds you should not eat meat. Okay, but they did right and so in my mind Okay, there, so there's clearly a gap here. There were vegetarians, but they were a minority most of the time there may have been a few times in places where um, uh, Vegetarianism was the norm, but most of the time most Tibetans continued to eat meat and the question then became why like if the uh, religious side is fairly clear that Meat is uh problematic at best, then why do people keep eating it and so that was the sort of, that 's the driving question for the second half of the book um, and Really, what I came up with was uh sort of two alternate perspectives on meat in which it 's um, in one way or another presented as a good thing um, and the first of those is this, what I call the necessary evil argument, which is basically looking at uh, health concerns, um, Tibetan medical conceptions, and uh, really a, a broad consensus among pretty much all the Tibetans, Tibetan authors that I'm looking at, that um, meat is healthy, and that avoiding it is actively unhealthy. Uh, most of the vegetarians that I've read about seem to have seen it as an ascetic practice, something that they were doing for um, religious reasons that they valued, but that they also assumed would uh, damage their health. In uh, a couple of cases, there are specific instances in which a um, llama like, uh, will refuse to eat meat, even though the doctor says they should for medicinal reasons, and then they die. And the disciples are like, Well, we really wish he hadn't been quite so strict on his vegetarianism. Um, so it's vegetarianism was clearly seen as an unhealthy diet, right? And I'm not a doctor, I don't want to weigh in on whether that's true or not, but it was clearly seen that way. And so for a lot of Tibetans this wasn't the, the problem was, okay, yeah, we get that meat is not really great, it's not ethical, but we have to. And so then you get all these discussions of okay, well, how can we eat meat in a more ethical way, right? And so on and so forth. So that's the necessary evil argument. Um, and the other side that um, that I really that I try to articulate is basically this sense that Buddhism isn't the only valued value system in Tibetan culture. And that there were other aspects of Tibetan culture that really valued meat and saw it not just as a necessary evil, but as something that is actually really positive and should be cultivated and used in life. And the two examples that I really look at the most are economic perspectives, where, um, where the fundamental goal is not achieving enlightenment, but becoming wealthy and this was a orientation that a lot of real tibetans had um and in that perspective what do you want to do you want to build your herd right you want to cultivate your herd you want to turn your herd uh into more portable forms of wealth you want to sell your animals when it's appropriate you also want to consume your animals conspicuously right you want to throw feasts where you invite your neighbors over for a, a big barbecue and there's lots of roast yak, right why? because this is a this is social capital, right This is you're demonstrating your wealth okay um, and so that's also a real perspective that uh, existed in Tibet and has to be taken into account when we're looking at meat. And the other one that I spend a, a bit of time looking at is this question of heroic masculinity um. And this is something that, uh, is pretty well established around the world that eating meat is associated with, um, strength and masculinity. And especially in the Tibetan medical tradition, um, eating meat is very clearly associated with uh, physical strength, right? Um, and, uh, not eating it is associated with physical weakness. Um, and then that, that dovetails into these sort of, uh, fairly militant um martial perspectives that a lot of tibetan men had um and valued and so in you're in this place where you're valuing um your ability to fight your ability to ride a horse um, when these are sort of the the primary positives right the primary uh goals in um you know sort of what we might call like a well-lived life right these are the characteristics of a well-lived life um, then meat is an integral part of that right both for its ability to um, demonstrate strength but also because of its uh, its connotations of um, strength and dominance over animals so for all of these you know sort of reasons so this is the the second sort of broad perspective that I um, that I identified uh, is one that really sees meat as a positive thing and a good part of life. And then, um, what I do in the in the final chapter, the seventh chapter, um, is to try to talk about ways in which um, Tibetan lamas tried to navigate between these three perspectives. Uh, the three perspectives again are the religious perspective that sees meat as a bad thing the necessary evil perspective that sees meat as bad but necessary and the positive good perspective that sees it just as a good thing and so we've got these three perspectives and what i do in what's really my concluding chapter um is to talk about ways in which different individual lamas tried to navigate that and so they might say things like you know yep we know that you got to eat meat it's actually important for your health and you can't practice buddhism if you're unhealthy so eat it but only eat naturally dead meat right only eat meat that died naturally or only eat old meat so that you're not you know directly supporting the butcher or um, you know these kinds of attempts to work around things or eat less or don't eat it on holy days or um, you know, this sort of these varieties of um what I call the chapter is called Seeking a Middle Way. Um and these sort of attempts to kind of navigate between these three different um three different perspectives on um, the question of eating meat. Yes.
0: Yeah. And most of these chapters, well pretty much all the chapters were really focused on the pre communist period. And so do you have an idea of what a vegetarian or no meat diet would have looked like In Tibet?
1: During that time. I mean, I think one of the things, so this actually is an interesting thing because, um, like I think other people, I had for a long time assumed that uh, the sort of pre 1950 Tibetan diet was really meat heavy. Um, And that was based on my, um, really an assumption based on um, my experience with contemporary Tibetans. But when I uh, submitted the the manuscript, the book manuscript for review, one of the comments I got back uh, from the anonymous reviewer was, are you sure about this? Like, prove it. And I said, okay, well, interesting. I hadn't ever really even questioned that assumption. And then when I went back and looked at stuff, and I did look at it, and I tried to investigate, what I realized is that it seemed like for a lot of people, meat was... Not unusual, but it was more of a luxury item than an everyday staple. And so you would see people talking about their life in the monastery where they would say things like, oh, and on Thursday we got a little bit of meat in our soup, which implies that six days of the week they don't, right? And so there's a, a sense, I started to get a sense that it might not have been as sort of an everyday piece of the diet as i had assumed it was um and so then the question of course becomes well what do people eat and the, the obvious first answer is sapa right roasted barley flour uh you know it, it's it's part of the you know the sort of tibetan self-conceptions for a reason because it's this major part of um tibetan culture uh, And, you know, there are people who will say, oh, what's a Tibetan? A Tibetan is someone who is Buddhist, speaks Tibetan, and eats Sampa, right? Like, that's how you define a Tibetan, right? Or or Tibetans, Tibetans are the Sampa eaters. Um, And so, like, this was a real thing. And I think my sense is that that formed most of the calories that most Tibetans probably got. Supplemented Mm -hmm. with meat, supplemented, obviously, with uh, a lot of dairy, particularly in the form of butter. Um, uh, often in tea, sometimes just straight off the spoon, um, as well as a variety of, um, less sort of, uh, you know, more sort of supplemental stuff. Uh, I'm thinking like trauma, um, uh, vegetables were available. There's this really great picture, uh, from the Charles Bell collection, that I couldn't get permission to you to reproduce in the book. Um. Of a vegetable seller in Lhasa in the 1910s. So at least some people in Tibet had access to vegetables. Um, they may not have been common, and certainly the more remote you were, the less your access was going to be. But these, you know, stuff existed. Um, and so my sense is that when somebody gave up meat, really what they were doing was giving up this sort of that aspect of a, di- of their diet and just simply consuming more Tzampa and more dairy. And Doesn't
0: sound too bad. Well, <laughs> I
1: don't know. I, I have to admit, I don't really like sampa. Um, <laughs> okay. that's just <excuse> me.
0: Um, <laughs> okay. So um, the epilogue, I found that really interesting um, mm. about the contemporary situation. Yeah. Obviously so much more. I mean, that could be a whole
1: new right. book. It's, yeah. That is. And that's why I called it an epilogue rather than another chapter. Um, for two reasons: one, that could be a whole book. It, it was I felt like even trying to keep it short as an epilogue, it still you know ran to 25 pages or something like that. Um, but uh, I, I, I call it an epilogue for two reasons. One, it, like it's super dense and could be expanded into a whole new book, and the second reason is simply that I'm not the person to write that book because of um, the nature of the research I did. Um, the limits on my fieldwork, the um, sort of, honestly, my inability to do the kind of fieldwork that I would really wanted to do initially uh, for all kinds of reasons. Um, I'm less confident in my conclusions in the epilogue than in most of the rest of the book. And so I wanted to include it. I didn't want to leave it out because I think it is really fascinating. Um, But I also wanted it to be Sort of. Here are some thoughts for other people to to take and run with, and disagree with, agree with, alter, write, um, take as a basis for their own questions, their own work, um, and and so on and so forth. Because um, the I think uh, it definitely does that. No <laughs> oh, good. I hope so. because yeah.
0: <laughs> all these things you talk about and write about, it's it's. I mean, so it's important and it's relevant in that context. So I won't make you talk at detail about a possible second book um so yeah so before we take up too much of your time um so what next what are you working on now
1: yeah well, so the the next thing and uh, maybe we can do another we can have another podcast about that one um in a few months is uh the uh, a book that's coming out on the first of october called the faults of meat and what this is is a uh, a collection of Tibetan texts uh translated into English. um I did a little bit less than half the translations myself. uh The rest were contributions from other people, including yourself. Thank you very much um, yeah and uh what I tried to do in putting the compilation together really was to give as much breadth and depth as possible to um if, to represent as much breadth and depth in um, Tibetan textual writings on vegetarianism, so these are all texts that deal with it, and they all deal with it in slightly, sometimes slightly, sometimes very different ways. So we have, you know, very uh, scholastic texts that dive right into Vinaya um, questions at great length. We've also got poetry. Um, We've got contemporary authors, Kempo Sutra Modro, R.J. Rinpoche, um, but we've also got uh, Murchin Kunduzongpo, uh, K. J., people from really uh, early on that really were sort of some of the, the, the first voices in, around this question. We've also got translations of a couple of um, the Lankavatara Sutra and the Mahaparinirvana Sutra, so we've got some canonical references in there as well. So I'm super excited about it. It's coming out with Wisdom. Um, They did a really amazing job in producing the book. I think it looks lovely. Um, Hopefully, other people will uh, like it as well. And um, yeah, so that'll be out October first, and I'm super excited about it. Um, Other than that, that actually kind of wraps up my um, my major work on animals and Tibet. And so I'm gonna. I don't ever envision myself not being interested in this topic um, and I'm particularly interested in trying to um, bring sort of Tibetan and Buddhist conceptions of um, animals to bear and to sort of intersect with contemporary discussions. Um, so I'm definitely going to stay active in in this question, but I'm also moving on into a whole new research project that... Uh, Looks at guru devotion, and in particular, I'm interested in um, sort of the differences between the normative, normative textual accounts of what people should, how people should have devotion to their gurus, and how people actually did have um, this really complex relationship, and what were the boundaries in that relationship between a uh, a master and a disciple, um, and like the uh, like Food of demons, um, that's going to be primarily focused on uh, pre-1950, so it's not an anthropological work. I'm not going out and um, basing it on, you know, a bunch of interviews. Instead, I'm really looking at textual material and trying to get a sense of um, how did people relate to their teachers in the pre-1950 period. Um, so that's the next project, and it's it's really in its infancy. Uh I gave my first uh public talk on it this summer at um the International Association of Tibetan Studies Conference in mm-hmm. Paris. Yes, and, I remember
0: that.
1: Yeah. And it was a really it was it was fun. It's also very nervous getting into uh, this brand new topic. Um and it's also obviously a very politically um and culturally loaded topic right now, a very controversial one. So
0: but again, another one that really needs addressing, like the vegetarianism in Tibetan Buddhism so yeah well that's
1: sort, of, that's sort of the hope. I mean I, um, I'll step back from all of this and say that I, I really I, I value scholarship, not just my own but other people's, that does have relevance to contemporary issues and I think that those of us who have this training as scholars are in a place to where we have an ability. Um, and some i might even say a responsibility to to do work that is meaningful for as many people as possible so hopefully definitely. that's a, no we'll be i'm sure
0: well we'll definitely have to have you back on the show once your new book comes out and yeah and yeah we look forward to hearing more about the new project and of
1: course we'll have you back
0: once that's done
1: excellent very good yeah
0: so thank you so much for being on the show people out there you should definitely read this book it's very exciting and um, yeah very current so yeah, well,
1: thank you for having me it's been uh, it's been a real pleasure um, great yeah wonderful
0: well thanks again um, and yeah. yeah look forward to hearing you again in october
1: all right sounds good